0: i'm
2: jason kander and this is majority 54 my hand is nearly worn out from the customized inscriptions that i've been sending out to folks who pre-bought outside the wire and i have a feeling it's about to get tougher on me because not only are the requests still rolling in but we're that much closer to the book being released the big day is tuesday august 7th and this week if you pre-order we'll email you the introduction and the first chapter I can't believe my publisher okayed this, but basically you'll get a piece of the book and a pretty sizable piece. It's the first 47 pages. So if you want to read part of Outside the Wire before anybody else, go to JasonCanderBook.com. All right, let's get to today's show. This is maybe the most on-brand episode of the show that we've ever done. I'm always telling you that if you want to bring people around to your opinion, you have to take them on your journey with you. That is exactly the story you're going to hear today from Shane Winmeyer. Shane came up in small-town Kansas, and he found a way to get political and stay political from a very young age. He was out in the streets fighting for gay rights long before he ever came out of the closet himself. From there, he's had an extensive career, spreading open-mindedness everywhere that he goes. You remember a few years ago when the owner of Chick-fil-A, this guy Dan Cathy, made some anti-gay remarks and it started a boycott? Well, did you ever wonder why you stopped hearing about that guy making remarks like that? It wasn't just about losing money. It was about a friendship he made with Shane Winmeyer. Here's my conversation with Shane about changing a mind by making a friend. So what was it like to be closeted about your sexuality growing up in a small town in Kansas?
3: You know, I uh, had it very fortunate in that I was always outgoing as a young adult, uh, very involved in my high school, you know, whether it be athletics or uh, theater, (laughs) uh, the journalism, uh, yearbook staff. Um, So I I was heavily involved, and my sexuality, um, although I I knew I was— different and kind of, you know, unique compared to everyone else. Um, I I was supported by my family. Um, you know, being in a rural area like Kansas, you know, there was a lot going on. And when I thought I might be gay, I think back then in high school, at least, I, I just kind of channeled that energy into more positive things that, you know, being gay back then was usually associated with HIV and AIDS. And um, I knew that you know that was something that at least for for my upbringing would be something awful so I, I i really avoided it and just pushed it really deep inside and i was definitely what they would call like the gay overachiever which is a a phenomenon where you know someone who's closeted will just overachieve in other ways to kind of prove to themselves as well as the people around them that they're still a good person and I think that's very much where I was in high school. It wasn't until college when I actually started dealing with my my identity and who I am. In college, you were doing HIV
2: awareness, HIV and AIDS awareness campaigning. You were, I think, marching for rights in D.C., right? <laughs> but again, still before you were out.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that was my way of kind of exploring and coping with my own uh you know, fears of coming out to my friends, right, my family and and to my fraternity brothers in college. And, you know, I would do, you know, HIV and AIDS awareness because I, I was deeply committed to helping people. But at the same time, it was my way of exploring, you know, what is AIDS and HIV and why does it impact people who, you know, I thought I might be. And, and it wasn't until I went to the very first, uh, back in 1992, I believe, uh, a march on Washington for LGBT rights, which back then was gay rights. And uh, that's when I finally, you know, basically came out to myself. You've spoken on, what, 600 campuses and you, you do an advocate's
2: guide in terms of like college campuses that are LGBT friendly, right? That's become a big focus for you.
3: Yeah. So Campus Pride is the organization that I founded in 2001. And that organization is what I do full time now. And I I travel and I do college speaking engagements. I do corporate events and talk about, you know, LGBTQ inclusion, uh, today's young adult who's LGBTQ um, and how. Um, their experience is much more broad and intersectional, right? And how times have changed. Um, But you are right. You know, my message is one of uh, inclusion. It's one of hope. And I think relationships have to be front and center in all the work that we do around social justice and advocacy.
2: Well, that brings us to the relationship that you developed uh, with Chick-fil-A and with Dan Cathy. So before we get into that, just sort of for the folks listening who who vaguely remember it but don't fully remember it, kind of refresh folks' memories about the controversy having to do with Chick-fil-A and the LGBT community and, and sort of how that started, if you would.
3: Well, I don't know that there was um, – there was a, a- – a starting date. Um, Chick Fil A had long been known as a company that you know had religious values and would not open on Sundays. And sadly, because we have many people in the LGBTQ community, including myself, who have been uh, hurt by religion, by faith, um, you know, it is a a sad situation where we have a lot of baggage. We have a lot of uh, hurt um, that we're grappling with because. We were kicked out of our our place of worship, um, and we were not able to to come to terms and to embrace, you know, our faith because we were um, ostracized from it. And so, you know, I think that's oftentimes forgotten. And so anytime that, you know, I personally hear of a company or a person, you know, talk about their religion or faith, I automatically— you know, am triggered, and I I start thinking of all the negative things that have caused me pain because of religion, right? And so I I think that, you know, Chick-fil-A is is one of the companies that, you know, LGBT folks, um, you know, had known for a long time that they had given money to some pretty, um, you know, demonizing um, uh, charity organizations such as— exodus international which called for the execution of gay people and you know some organizations like focus on the family that the leader of focus on the family had actually uh you know used language and you know talked about reparative therapy and you know language that was very dehumanizing and so dan kathy uh the son of the founder um had went on the radio and it was actually i believe a conservative radio and i'm not you know i I d- didn 't listen to it. I just heard about it through third party channels um, and how he basically there 's an audio clip i 'm sure any of your listeners can um, pull up but where he talked about you know uh, you know marriage be- being between a man and a woman and and really um forcefully um, you know stated his opinion around that uh, in a very biblical way that you know I just think that was um you know, very triggering, and, and I, it was upsetting to me to hear this. I
1: think we're inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at Him and say, You know, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. And uh, I pray God's mercy on our generation that has such a, a prideful,
2: arrogant attitude to think that we would the audacity to try to redefine what marriage is all about. Mm. Sobering but powerful words from Dan Cathy, the president and chief operating officer of Chick-fil-A.
3: You know, I didn't even eat at Chick-fil-A because I had never eaten at Chick-fil-A. And I think many people who were LGBT at the time, you know, had known about Chick-fil-A. So, you know, it was a really a moment where people uh, came together and said, you know what, this is enough. You know, we've heard about Chick-fil-A for a number of years. You know, this at the time when we were trying to fight for, you know, my right to marry, you know, my, you know, um, my husband and I have been together um, at that time almost 20 years, um, you know, and so, you know, Dan Cathy um, had said this on the radio. It became a big news item, as it should, and, you know— you know, people started, you know, boycotting and doing sit-ins. And um, the part that I think um, oftentimes gets forgotten is that it was becoming so, I would, violent um, in that people, you know, were showing up with Chick-fil-A bags and, you know, on college campuses. And Uh, There's a story of this one young man who took a Chick-fil-A bag and threw it at a group of uh, students that were at their pride table uh, in their um, student union and said, I hate gays, and threw the Chick-fil-A bag at the the students who were sitting there, right? And so the Chick-fil-A, the symbol, became an anti-LGBT brand, and, um, you know, Campus Pride, our organization, um, decided that we were going to take a stand and we're going to do something about it. And so, um, we actually organized, um, what we called an educational campaign to talk about the, the millions of dollars. I believe it was over $10 million at the time that Chick-fil-A had donated over the years, uh, to anti-LGBT causes. And, um, we had students you know, because (laughs) um, I I thought it was important to make an impact. We had students stand um, in cow costumes at different campuses. So they dressed up as cows and they passed out a flyer that said, you know, your chicken sandwich is buying hate. And it explained how all the money that was spent and what it went toward. And, you know, most young people today um, have gay friends, have family members who are, you know, LGBT um, and you know, they don't want to, you know, do something that doesn't support someone they love, right? And so that's kind of how how the controversy uh, got started. And our campaign took off and um, it led to, you know, ultimately uh, where I am today, which is, you know, having a relationship with a man that I, um, you know, I respect as he respects me. But, you know, we don't always agree and we don't have, you know, the same opinions, yeah, so you heard Dan Cathy say this, and you thought, "I got to be friends with this guy." That's actually no. <laughs> okay, I would think, <laughs> no, I I would not, think there'd be an evolution not, <laughs> there, right? There was an evolution. Yeah, no, I I heard it and I thought this guy is is harming and hurtful and angry and I, I the worst person ever. I thought you know, as many LGBT people should. Think When someone says something like that, you know, he's against us. He's not on our side. Um, And that's how I felt. And, you know, I was very, you know, upset and angry anytime, you know, someone who has wealth and power says something like this, you know, and I'm sitting here going my husband and I've been together 20 some years. Why can't we have the same rights? Uh, you know, our love is just as important as any love that 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 he's had. And so I was angry, yes. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I need to create a friendship with this guy. Nope, nope. <laughs> so how, how did the relationship happen? Like who called who? So I have had relationships uh, and still, you know, Campus Pride works on college campuses. So I, you know, put on my my um, activist hat and I thought, you know what, we're doing this campaign. We're going to show up in cow costumes. We're going to create all this havoc on college campuses to create awareness, you know, and, and you know, I don't know where it's going to go to, but, you know, we're going to ultimately make sure college campuses are safe places for LGBT people. And we're not going to let this Chick-fil-A brand, uh, you know, ruin the safe spaces that many campuses have for transgender, gay, lesbian, bisexual people. And so that was— m- our goal. I never knew it would lead to an actual conversation with Dan Cathy. But because Chick-fil-A on college campuses is actually a franchise through a, um, uh, a lease agreement. So it's, it's people who own businesses like Sedexo, mm. Chartwells, Aramark. Those are third parties. They license the Chick-fil-A brand and they put it in little shops on college campuses. And luckily for me, you know, companies like Sodexo and Chartwells, um, I've known people at for a number of years. And so they were getting inundated with calls and, you know, people upset with Chick-fil-A being on their campus. So they were over it, all right? And, you know, they were doing their best, you know, as these third-party licenses to have this Chick-fil-A brand, which was highly, highly, um, you know— criticized and, you know, students were protesting. We were encouraging the protests, you know, and so I had conversations there because I didn't want to ruin the relationships we had with Aramark and Chartwells and Sodexo. So I reached out and said, we're going to be doing this. I want to make sure you know about it. Obviously, it's because of Chick-fil-A. They totally understood. They were as upset as anyone because, you know, they just wanted to license a good chicken sandwich. They didn't want to deal with all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... I was talking one day to um the president of of Chartwells actually and um we were talking about you know how the cows were showing up at the Chick-fil-A you know uh, campuses that, that he was at and you know he he appreciated us you know not doing anything that would create you know a you know any type of you know riot or you know problem and was being very respectful and um he goes hold on one second and so he 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 says I have to take this call and so he puts me on hold for about 30 seconds, and he goes, you won't believe who that was. And I said, who? He goes, it was Dan Cathy at Chick-fil-A. Hmm. I said, well, that's that's cool. <laughs> was, he goes, and don't worry, he goes, I told him that I was talking to Shane Winmeyer and I need to finish that call from Campus Pride. And he goes, you won't believe what he asked me, though. I said, what? And he goes, well, he asked me if I could have or, you know, he could have your phone number. And I said, OK, you know, I, I really hadn't thought about that. Like, we're not taught to think about if somebody reaches out to you from what you would call your opponent or somebody who is on the opposite side of a of a very, you know, hotly debated political topic. Do you sit down and talk to him? Do you take a call from them? Right. And um, so I had to kind of step back and he goes, would you be OK if I gave him your number? He wants to talk to you. And I was like, hmm. And I just took a moment and I said, sure, you know, and and that's kind of what started everything was me going with my gut and saying, you know what, I don't know where this will lead, but he can talk to me. I'm not going to change my mind because of a phone call, right? And so it led to um, us leaving phone messages. Um, He left several for me and then I returned his call. Um, And then finally, we had probably a dozen, you know, hour long phone calls over a period of Two to three weeks, I'm guessing, Um, and you know what was interesting about those phone calls was that while we, I was very pointed and direct with how the Chick fil A brand is hurting young people, particularly gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender young people. um, You know, Dan, you know, listened. Uh, He was respectful. Um, beyond that, we started maybe by the 10th the phone call or whatever, you know, talking about relationships and talking about he asked about my husband. He was always refer to Tommy as my husband. And so he was treating me with what I talked about earlier, which was this idea of dignity and respect. Right. Well,
2: and, can I ask you real quick? Can I ask you, did they start out the conversations? Did they start out that way or did they start out with him just trying to Talk
3: you down and get you to stop doing what you're like. How did they start out? He never once asked me to stop doing anything. He um, started out the conversation by just introducing himself. And he assumed that I knew who he was. And I, I did. And then he goes, I wanted a call to listen. And so he asked me what I had to say, and I told him about the incidents that happened. I told him about what Campus Pride does and how what he said was hurtful and harmful. I told him about my relationship and how we deserved the same, uh you know, legal rights uh, under the law as any other relationship. So, you know, it was about listening, and he wanted to hear um, from somebody who— you know, was a gay man, uh, how this impacted what he said. And there was a lot of him talking about, you know, his views and his ideas and why he said what he did and, and how, you know, it was a conservative religious radio station. Um, and, you know, there was a lot said that, that I, you know, I respected and I heard. I didn't necessarily agree with it, but we were able to talk about that. And, you know, he genuinely, um, was and it was hard on a phone call because I didn't, you know, this wasn't the first call, right? Like it took a while. And I said, you know what? He's just wanting me to, you know, stop this awareness campaign. Right. And so I wasn't going there, but it was interesting by the fifth call, sixth call, he never once said, you know what? I want you to stop. And we didn't stop. We didn't stop the campaign until two months later, Hmm. right? After, you know, there had been some in-person meetings. And so um, it's really hard to to explain without giving too many details that I don't want to share sure. because of, you know, them being, you know, private. Sure.
2: If you're like me, the list of books that you want to read or that people suggest you read is never ending. You simply don't have time to read them all. Blinkist has solved your long list of must reads once and for all.
4: Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements, so you can read or listen to them under 15 minutes all on your phone. You know, I used to do this when I was pregnant and I couldn't sleep at night, and I would catch up on all the books I never actually read in high school, like Moby Dick and The Picture of Dorian Gray, and there's just something that is completely lost in the shortening of a fiction book. But these books are the nonfiction ones. These are the classic titles that you've been wanting to read or remember for years, like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Thinking Fast and Slow, The Power of Habit, The Four-Hour Workweek.
2: They even made The Four-Hour Workweek more efficient.
4: (laughs) With Blinkist, you will expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere.
2: Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Majority54 to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today.
4: Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from the best of list. So you are always getting the most powerful ideas in a made-to-mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. So get started today.
2: That's Blinkist. It's spelled B L I N K I S T, Blinkist.com slash majority five four to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. It sounds like what it was was the two of you talking not about your views so much or your, you know, your, I can't even say views really in your case. It's more like, your disagreement, obviously, um, but more focusing on how you
3: each individually came to your beliefs, like your stories. <laughs> Yeah, I think that is that was what the first uh you know initial five or six calls were about were um you know understanding who I am and uh, me understanding who he is. You know, up at that point I never really like the Baptist faith like the idea that you know when someone would say oh, I'm praying for you, you know, that's what it seems to be what Baptists do all the time. They pray for everyone and I was I always thought that was like an insult. Um I mean, he you know and I I've learned that you know a lot of, you know, not in a bad way, but Baptist people pray for people, especially Southern Baptists, pray for people all the time. And I'm like, you know what, if that's your way, you just pray for people, you know, that's good, right? Like, you can pray as much as you want for me, for everyone, for yourself, for your family. Um, so it took me a while to understand the language, just as I'm sure it it took Dan a while to understand my language and, and my story. Um, and, you know, it got to the point where I I put on the hat that this was my uncle, Right. Dan was an uncle that I have who's a a minister who, you know, is an evangelist minister. Um, He knows my husband and I because we go back every Christmas, every, you know, family reunion. And he always... You know, hugs Tommy and me. Gives us, you know, asks us questions. Um, you know, he he would never do anything to harm us, but he doesn't really understand us, right? Mm-hmm. He's not going to mm-hmm. stand up for us, right? So I, I approached it as, okay, this is somebody who I don't think really intended to harm me or other people, right? But at the end of the day, you know, is there some relationship here that can be created? And that's where I got to after we started meeting in person, and what convinced me that. You know, maybe there's a different way here to approach this. And you know, Campus Pride basically uh was set a you know, the organization was gonna do what it needed to do, but Shane Winmeyer, the you know, the individual was going to have a relationship with somebody, you know, who at the end of the day, you know, is like my uncle and maybe doesn't agree with me on everything, but is never going to if I tell him something hurts me or harms me, he's not gonna do that. So you have the first in-person meeting. How is that
2: different than the phone calls?
3: Well, I was I mean, I wasn't convinced of anything when we met in person. Right. So like, you know, I was just like, you know what, we've had some phone calls. He listened to me. You know, he told me about how the 990s, you know, a year ago, they actually had stopped donating to some of the groups that I was concerned about. And I really didn't believe that. I was like, what do you mean? And one of the things that's really hard for people to realize is that 990s are always a year behind in, right. You're talking about a year forms, behind. Right. Just to be. Yeah. Clear. It's a tax document form that all nonprofits that I believe bring in over ten thousand dollars in revenue have to file. And it shows what monies they have if they give out monies to other groups and so forth. And, um, you know, he, you know, had told me that, you know, a year prior to this, you know, prior to him saying what he did, they actually had stopped donating to the most you know, aggressive, the the most hateful, you know, if you can, I guess, term it that way. I mean, hate is hate regardless, sure, right? Sure, um, But, you know, the focus on the family, the Exodus International, those types of groups, you know, they had to stop donating to. And I, I really didn't believe that. And so he goes, you know, let's, you know, if you're up to it, he goes, you know, we've had several phone calls. Um you know, let's meet in person and, you know, I can show them to you and, you know, I'll, I'll bring, you know, some of my, he brought two people and he goes, you can bring two people, (laughs) right? He was like negotiated. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Um, You know, and, and we met at an airport hotel in Atlanta, Georgia. (laughs) So, um, you know, it was like neutral land, Um, you know, it wasn't Singapore or something, but it was like neutral territory. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, it was, it was, um. It was supposed to be just an hour, hour and a half long meeting. It ended up starting at nine o'clock and going until four o'clock that day. Wow. Right. And, you know, we we had lunch together and then, um, you know, we talked about all the concerns I had. We talked about, you know, the 990s. He showed them to me and it was true that they did stop some of the giving uh, prior to this whole thing even happening with him on the radio. And so he wasn't you know, telling the truth. And that's why it became such a a really muddled issue because they're like, well, we stopped donating to these groups. Why are you all mad at us? And it was because of what he said. And so, you know, it was one of those moments where I didn't let him off just because we had a, uh, you know, an in-person meeting and several phone calls, but I was able to meet him face to face. um, And I was able to have other folks from uh, our organization there. Um, And it was the beginning of you know, a dialogue. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I talk about all the time. And I um, in the piece I've written and several of the, the pieces that I've I've published since then is that, you know, there's a time when you have to stand up and, you know, have your picket signs and, you know, be able to, you know, yell and scream and holler, right? Like that, there's nothing wrong with that, right? And there's a time and a place, right? And there's people who that's what, you know their idea of activism is and there's there's nothing that i have a problem with i do that myself right like and i can also sit down with someone and have a conversation and put down that picket sign right and talk and dialogue and there's nothing wrong with that either right if i go back i can always pick up the sign again and go back out and you know march and rally but it does there's nothing wrong with having dialogue. And I think that's lost from our politics today. And you know, one of the reasons why we have such huge division is because we 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 lead from a standpoint of fear rather than a standpoint of hope.
2: Well, and knowing knowing him as you do now, do you think that initially what brought him to the table or what brought him to ask for your phone number, do you think it was the financial pressure or do you think it was something different?
3: You know, I don't think it was a financial pressure. I think that um, you know a lot of people want to argue that you know he was trying to fix this. He was trying to get. They were not losing any money. If you look at their their financials from that year, they made more money, right? So it had nothing. I mean, and they've continued to make more money. It has not hurt their business whatsoever. Well,
2: if I recall correctly, it was like like Mike Huckabee was out there telling people
3: to go eat at Chick fil A if they were opposed to LGBT rights. If I recall, right. Well, of course, of course. And what I'm saying, though, is that even in the subsequent years, um, you know, even when Mike Huckabee hasn't been saying that. Right. Like, I don't really listen to Mike Huckabee, but (laughs) I'm sure that me, I'm I'm tuning in every day. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Sorry. The only one Huckabee I hear is Sarah Sanders all the time. So uh, but no, seriously. You know, Mike Huckabee, um, I'm sure, was saying that, but in the subsequent, nothing has changed Chick fil A's financials, right? Like, they moved into New York City, right? They set up a shop there and they made lots of money. I think it's one of their highest grossing stores is in New York City and I believe Chicago. I mean, so they're moving into places. And I think maybe one of the things that, uh, and the reason why, Dan, I think our relationship, Today, I mean, I get tweet, you know, I get texts from him. I get, you know, phone calls. Um, when he's in the area, he calls me and says, hey, we want to get together. Um, he actually had me— um You know, about six months, eight months ago, I spoke when he was in Charlotte. He had a group of Southern operators and, you know, Chick-fil-A, you know, doesn't have owners. They have operators, right? And these are the people in the Southern area. And he goes, would you like to come to my operator meeting? And so I said, well, sure, I'll drop by. And so I dropped by. He was in Charlotte and it was at the convention center. And he goes, hey, do you want to say something to this group of operators about our story and about, you know, um, just, you know, your story of coming out and being gay. And so he gave me the microphone and I got to talk about being gay to these operators and how important it was, you know, that all customers are able to be served and be able to enjoy, you know, if they choose to, the Chick-fil-A brand.
2: Do I have this right? You also went and talked to Sunday school students
3: at Dan's church? Yeah, Dan invited me to his church. Now, this didn't happen right away. Um, You know, and the reason why I always have to— feel like i have to justify my 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 relationship with dan is i've been uh attacked by the left um i've been attacked by the far right and it's only the people you know who i guess we'd call the middle who are encouraged by this conversation. But I, I have been much more aggressively attacked by the left simply for wanting to talk to someone. They all think that, you know, somehow Dan made a bunch of money or I made a bunch of money. And, you know, the only thing I've made is, you know, a friend, someone who I, you know, who I think at the end of the day, you know, does care for for people like me. Mm-hmm. Um, he's learning a lot. I think he he is understanding who we are, Um, I, you know, I always look back and I think, you know, my grandfather, who would have been Dan's age, I guess, um, you know, never knew anyone gay. He never knew what the word gay was. He just had stereotypes of that. And, you know, so it, as we all know, changing hearts and mind takes time. It takes knowing someone, it takes visibility. And so, you know, that's the path I'm on. Um, And, you know, the, um, the question you had, though, was related to, you know the the Sunday school class and and Dan actually did um invite me to his church and you know being somebody who's catholic you know I've been through some churches right but never to like a baptist church or whatever and and so it was different um usually the catholic church is much more you know uh kind of grandiose and, you know, we have more ritual stuff and, uh, you know, things that always happen. Well, the Baptist Church is like a a, kind of like a little mini rock concert, I guess. Um, uh, And, you know, then afterwards, I I got to speak to a group of 16, 17, 18-year-old, you know, uh, high school students. And Dan wanted me to share my story of coming out. And, you know, that's what I did. So— You know, you were talking about the criticism you get from folks who feel like,
2: I mean, whatever their argument is, folks on the left. I think the important thing here to point out is that you haven't changed your values. You haven't compromised anything. In fact, and I'm sure that at no point when you're sitting down with Dan Cathy to talk about this, were you saying things like, oh, well, yeah, that point you made is actually completely true about gay people. Like, I really doubt you said that at any point or, or even thought that. <laughs>
3: no, I, <laughs> no, exactly. And and I, our relationship also, I mean, while well, obviously me being gay is all of who, I mean, I've spent my entire life being gay. Like, and I say that, like, I'm a professional gay, right? Like, <laughs> okay. it's not just that I'm you know, yeah, it's, part and, uh, it's part of your activism. <laughs> right, it's part like, of your yeah. career. I, I have been professionally gay and, and devoted my life to LGBT issues since, you know, I was 21 years old. So, um, yeah. So Dan Cathy, we are we are very opposite in our views, although I would like to think that Dan is now aware of the fact that. He has someone in his life, myself, uh, who is gay, and he thinks, um, hopefully—I believe he thinks about his actions and about Chick-fil-A's actions from a different perspective now. Um, And, you know, I think that— I, well, I know that chick-fil-A hires gay people right they have gay employees um and they've hired gay employees after this uh not just at their stores but in their corporate office you know so i I know that the company um and and Dan have uh, become aware and are aware of, you know, places like New York City and Chicago. I mean, they're there. I mean, Chick-fil-A is there to serve the community. So I, I encourage anyone who's LGBTQ, if you have a fundraiser or you have something local in your community, go to Chick-fil-A and say, hey, we want you to support this. Because, you know, Dan and the, you know, the folks at Chick-fil-A have always said, you know, the operators, the stores are there to serve their community. And that's part of what, you know, their community, if there's LGBT stuff going on, you know, or or even if it's, you know, you know, something related to, uh, you know, a gay pride celebration, they have they have been involved in those. It's, the problem is that the media doesn't pick up on those stories. Right. They only pick up on the stories that kind of reinforce their narrative. And I say the media, I'm really talking about the left will reinforce their narrative and the right will re- reinforce their narrative with other stories. Well, and
2: the whole reason that I started this podcast is because I just had so many people who would say to me that they had uh, somebody in their life, a relationship of some kind with somebody who voted differently than them, saw things differently politically, and they, they felt like they couldn't keep that relationship anymore. And they wanted to know how they could talk to those people about their views and about politics without losing that person in their life. And what I would always say to people is, Every relationship that you have personally with someone who disagrees with you is an opportunity for you to advance the cause because you have credibility with them via that relationship. And what you've done is is sort of the reverse. There's somebody who uh, you know had a, a very different opinion that, and that opinion was hurting people. And you you and he built a relationship, and that has changed his uh, behavior and his approach. But more than anything, that has not required you at any point to change your view. Uh, It's just built credibility for your view with him.
3: You're exactly right about credibility, trust, right? Like it's trust. Mm -hmm. And Dan trusts that I have, uh, you know, um, a level of respect for him that, you know, there's certain conversations that we've had that, you know, I'm not going to talk about here. And, you know, Dan and I have had conversations about... Um, you know, how he feels about what happened that day when he was on the radio, right? That it's not my place to to share things like that. But I know that at the end of the day, I have built this, this credibility, as you say, this trust with Dan that, you know, we're in this together and we do um, see that, you know, the world around us has not necessarily shown two people like ourselves coming together and creating a relationship or a friendship. And when I wrote the piece, Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy, in many respects, it's been more hurtful than coming out to some of my friends and family because the left, you know, was really aggressive in how would I ever come out as a friend of Dan Cathy? Yeah, and I'm thinking, wow. why are we in this society where we can't be friends with people who, you know— just because they have opposing voices doesn't mean they have to be opposing people, which is what I write about in that piece. And you know, I think that's truly sad. And that's why I think again i'm gonna I'm gonna stress this that you know we have to lead from a perspective, from a standpoint of hope, because most of our world is driven by fear right now. And if we let ourselves lead through fear, We're going to lead ourselves down a pathway that that I think is destructive. And so Harvey Milk used to say, you got to give them hope.
2: Next time your favorite fast food restaurant says something really horrendous, you're just going to have to make some food at home.
4: Sunbasket has been rated the number one meal kit. This is a great option for those situations by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. But for me, what matters is that Sunbasket helps me eat healthier. Simple as that.
2: Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Now, you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes, easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft cooked eggs.
4: Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh, organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafood.
2: There's something for every healthy journey, every boycott of a fast food restaurant, <laughs> and every busy lifestyle. Go to sunbasket.com slash five, four today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash five, four for $35 off sunbasket.com slash five, four. We end every episode by going through a quick list of arguments that people might hear from, say, you know, you mentioned like when you go home, you, you're you going to encounter uh, a relative who, who maybe has a different point of view. So we end each, each episode by talking about the kind of things that you might hear across that, that dinner table over the holidays and that sort of thing. Uh, and then we, we respond to them. So today, obviously, we're talking about the national conversation around LGBTQ rights and just how regressive that, that, uh, that the other side has become. So we'll start with the first talking point. You know, Donald Trump has repeatedly tried to ban uh, trans individuals from, from serving in the military.
0: This policy rescinds the Obama-era rule change that allowed transgender service members to serve, but it also uh, allows act pe- people who are currently active in the military, most of them, to continue serving. But it prohibits transgender individuals from enlisting into the, into the military, and they may, those who are currently serving may be required to serve according to their gender at birth. Now, James Mattis defended this decision in a statement uh, announcing the policy, saying that there were some concerns about the effect of transgender troops serving in the military on military readiness, as well as costs, and he also noted that it would require waiving some requirements that are already in place for those who are serving. But those statements contradict a 2016 uh, study on the impact of transgender service members on the military that was done by the Rand Corporation uh, that found that some of those effects are minimal or, if not uh, negligible.
2: So let's start there. Like, how do you answer folks who who argue uh, that? trans
3: individuals are a weakness on the battlefield? Well, I think it's first of all important to recognize that trans people have always been part of the military and have oftentimes been closeted or or not able to be out as trans. And, you know, I think that any... Person who wants to serve in the military and defend our country should have the right to do that. Um, and the same arguments have been used, uh, you know, around racial uh, issues around uh, people of color in the military. It's also been used around, you know, gay, uh, gay and bisexual people in the military. So I think it's one of those things that you know, at the end of the day, um, a trans person, uh, if they want to fight for our country, defend our country, you know, then they should have the right to do that. I don't think, you know. Uh, whether it be Donald Trump or whoever argues this, um, you know, has any merit in understanding, you know, the value that a trans person uh, brings to the military. And we also think about military as like the front lines and, you know, like fighting with your hands. I mean, some of the trans service members I know are, are amazing, amazing linguists. And, you know, we need more, you know, people, you know, being able to speak different languages. And so everyone has a role to play in our country, whether it be in the military or elsewhere.
2: Yeah. And as, as a former uh, soldier, I can tell you that, look, at the end of the day, the job is about, it's about having the courage to either do the right thing or just, you know, fight for your country. And so one, you know, you check that box. These are courageous people. And then second, uh, nobody, like in my experience, you know, the politicians make a big deal out of this. Most soldiers that I dealt with, like they don't care. And they're, they're, I remember once, um, you know, before they actually lifted Don't Ask, Don't Tell. You know, I didn't talk politics with my soldiers, but I remember I would listen. I would overhear them a lot and I would pay attention. And I remember sitting there overhearing them talk about it and uh they were talking about the fact that don't ask don't tell might go away and i remember what they all just kept saying is like does anybody care no and they're like no i don't <laughs> i don't i mean like like it meaning does anybody care if somebody in their unit is gay because the thing we have to remember is that these are mostly millennials and now increasingly they'll be in the future generation z this is a generation that is pretty progressive and and just sees these things differently not to mention the fact that when you're in and sorry I'm going on about this one for a while cuz I have more <laughs> experience with it but when you're in the the military like you the military you go into is from the moment you get into basic training whatever the military is at that moment like it's introduced to you and that's the only military you know so for instance when they lifted don't ask don't tell and they made it so you could serve openly all of those briefings that you got in basic training, I assume they changed to just add in like when they went through the equality section, just add in LGBT and and they told recruits sitting there, you're gonna you're never gonna um, you know be discriminatory toward people, you won't bully anyone for this. And that's an order. When you're given that, that is an order and that's what you know. You just know, hey, I'm not supposed to do that, so I won't. And it's no different than, hey, uh, you're responsible for your rifle. I mean, it's just, this is, it's training. And and so I, the people who think this can't work have clearly never served, is my point. Okay, and a totally unrelated question. Uh, what are your
3: thoughts on wedding cakes these days? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think uh, I I always, I've been um, telling my straight friends that if they want a wedding cake, I would love to bake one for them. <laughs> um, you know, I believe in baking wedding cakes for whoever. Um, you know, I think it is a, uh a uh, uh, setback um i think that it's a very narrowly defined uh case that um you know i think sends a wrong message and i think that the you know uh what i would call the the religious extremists you know the the far right are using it as you know more than what it actually is and what it says um you know i i believe that you know my relationship with Chick-fil-A um, and, you know, everything that I've been about um, is telling people that regardless of who you are, you should welcome them and you should serve them food, right? And you should—you know, your your restaurant, whether it be, you know, whatever your beliefs are, that people are people, right? And so I think that the cake just—you know, the, the cake um, court case is one that— um, is going to continue to divide us, sadly. And, um, we, you know, I'm worried about the courts right now with, you know, getting a, um, another justice that, you know, isn't quite as, you know, fair minded, um, as what, you know, Kennedy was for, for gay rights, um, and for other rights of women. And so I, I think it's really perplexing right now.
2: Yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like, you know, things were obviously going in the in the right direction. I mean, yeah, the, the marriage decision we've had culturally, I think things have changed in a really positive way. And this case, to me, felt like you said it—you described it as I think kind of a narrow piece—and and I think that's right. It felt to me like more of a like a la- at the time like a last gasp of of the right to use this as a wedge issue and motivate people. And and then we ended up with this. Terrible ruling out of it. And now it's, I think, beyond like political wedge issue territory or, or hurtful, but in a in a less broad way to now it's it's a threat. I mean, now with with Kennedy leaving and with Trump getting to appoint yet another new justice, it's OK, are we are we back in this fight all over again? And I I think we don't know the answer yet.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's what's perplexing about it is we just don't know. We can't see the future and we can't see what's just going to lead to. I mean, you know, obviously our country, I don't think it's ever been well in my lifetime, it's never been more divided um, than I see it right now. And so much so that when people start uh, when people stop talking and stop, you know, uh, stop leading, right, which I haven't seen good leadership from our our Congress in a long time, whether it be Democrats or Republicans, um, no, one, no one's doing anything. They're just quiet. And we have, you know, sadly, what I think has become really a dictatorship out of the presidency.
2: Well, speaking of the president, you know, during the 2016 campaign, he said. LGBT, the gay community. They kill gays in these countries. And she wants to have a 500... You know, it's interesting. I've been saying a 500% increase, and I was actually corrected. It's 550% increase over what Obama's allowing in. So you tell me, who's better for the gay community and who's better for women than Donald Trump? Believe me. And the reason I bring this up is because I hear all the time Republicans like Paul Ryan and others say things like, well, I support uh, LGBT rights, right? They'll, they'll say it. Um, and then there's nothing in their voting record. In fact, they, they actively work in the other direction. But things have changed culturally to where they clearly feel they have to give word to this lip service to it, but then they don't actually do it. So my question, I guess, is, can you be a supporter of the gay community while
3: constantly working against the gay community? Is that a thing? no and it's not a thing i think what's a thing is that people don't read today they don't uh you know understand that they can actually you know pick up a newspaper or go and research a topic and that's the problem with our society today is we just listen to sound bites and politicians know that you cannot today the pendulum has shifted you cannot say that I am anti gay because it will hurt your business it'll hurt your chances of being reelected right and that's a good thing right um but it's a bad thing because now the the anti lgbt rhetoric and the the actions have went into the closet, and people aren't either motivated or willing or you know at a point where you know they feel like they have the time, I'm not for sure what it is, to be able to research and say, you know what, Paul Ryan, you haven't done anything for LGBT people, right? You know, Donald Trump, you you held the rainbow flag the wrong way when you held it up, right? Like, you, we need to hold our politicians and our leaders accountable. But in order to do that, we have to be able to find out, you know, what the truth is. And I think that's the problem we're having today is and, and what I'm most concerned about is where do you find the truth? Let's, I want to close this out with a question I don't usually ask, but I think it's it's appropriate for
2: you. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of uh, antagonism and you've, you've overcome it to make great things happen in the world. We rarely address this on the show, but I would love to hear your advice on what to do when you're trying to talk to somebody and their words and their beliefs just make your blood boil, but you're trying to
3: have a conversation. like. What's your advice to people on how to do that? So um, I've had somebody yell some pretty awful things at me, and it does take two people to have dialogue. Um, you can't have dialogue with somebody who doesn't want to have a conversation. So that's the first thing. Um, you know, I I have approached people and, you know, people who I, I know are either yelling things or saying things, and I have approached them and said, would you be open to coming over and, and sitting and having a conversation, right, and taking it out of the context of the moment and going over and sitting and have the conversation start out by just getting to know each other, asking them about, you know, their family, um, their husband or wife or or girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever, you know, they have, you know, uh, a close relationship with you know, ask them about what's going on in their life. I mean, try to get to know them as a person, right? Before you start to get to know them, or you know, before you let the issue that is defining the moment uh, get you know uh, in the way of of being humans. And I think if you're able to find someone's humanity and sit down and uh, speak to them one on one, and and spend some time learning about each other's humanity then you're able to have the building blocks to have discussions that can build that integrity that trust and it may not happen in the first conversation but have it be a building block you know don't have it be you know you know a a rocket that explodes right like you want to have these moments of humanity that you have these conversations that help people, you know, get to know each other. And so that's how I approach things. And sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> sometimes you sit there going, oh, well, that didn't work, right? And, and it's not always going to work. But I, I think for the moments that it might work in, um, you'll be really surprised at the outcomes. Shane, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. A huge team candor
2: thank you to Shane Winmeyer for sharing his story with us today and teaching us about being a decent person to people who deny your most basic humanity. If Shane can have these difficult conversations, then we all can.
4: Have you been thinking about who you might have one of these conversations with?
2: Uh, Kurt Schilling and I are having,
4: <laughs> Kurt, Oh, yeah. Kurt we and sh- I are. You should reach out.
2: Yeah, we're having coffee like <laughs> a couple of days, pretty sure.
4: For further details on Shane's story, look up the 2013 HuffPo piece, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan, Kathy, and Chick fil A. And make sure to find all of his books via ShaneWindmeyer.com. That's ShaneWindmeyer.com with two E's in Windmeyer.
2: Either find me on Twitter, at Jason Kander, or email us. It's hellomajority54 at gmail.com. I'm Jason Cander On behalf of Diana and the team here at Majority54, thanks for listening. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster we're on the cusp of a better world. For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders, Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.